You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with two market veterans, one described by the other as the most seasoned executive on Bay Street, and both having decades of experience in asset management, mergers and acquisitions in the industry, and strategic positioning of their respective company. We'll speak on how the market infrastructure has changed over the years, the rise of factor investing in quantitative methods and modeling of trading, liquid alternatives, and creating products to deliver on investor preferences and needs. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today's Thursday, April 30th, and this is James Brown with CASA, and we're doing some alternative thinking here with Kevin McCready from AGF Management Limited and Roland Ostrip with Wavefront Global Asset Management. Uh, we'll start with uh, self-introductions. Maybe start with you, Kevin. Yeah, good morning, James. Uh, you know, I've been uh, in the uh, industry for 30-plus years. Um, I wear two hats at AGF today. I've always been an investment uh, side of the house, so I grew up as a portfolio manager for many, many years. Uh, I became a CIO uh, first time in 2002, which was kind of uh, interesting to go through that period, 2008, and then now. Um, so I have, uh, and I also wear now the CEO hat uh, for the company as well. So both CIO and CEO, and and both occupy a lot of time right now in these kind of events. Wow. So what what kind of um, portfolios were you running? I guess in your your earlier days, and then when you became CIO, and and are you still running money now? Yeah, no, I uh, was a growth manager, and uh, I started my career at J.P. Morgan in 1982, and then uh, spent the bulk of it there, about uh, 18 years there. And then um, I stopped running mine about 2006 because uh, I was running, I was president of an asset manager at that point in time, CIO, mm-hmm. and you know the, the third leg of it of you know running money is a full time job too. So, um, but today I'm actively involved in a CRS allocation committee. Uh, I probably set most of the direction on the macro side of the house anyway. So, mm-hmm. but very different than at, down at the security level. Wow. And then what would you say maybe has changed in, since you started at JP Morgan back in 82 to, uh, to now is markets, uh, obviously a lot more digital, but is there anything to the, the tone of the markets that changed in that, that period? Yeah. I mean, we, we could spend a, a separate hour on this <laughs> topic alone. I mean, uh, market structure is probably the biggest thing that comes to mind. Um, you think about the market making function back then. In terms of uh, you know people standing in to make a market, uh, that's why uh, bid ask spreads were fairly large. Uh, even think about commissions back then, right? We were probably in the oh, eight yeah. nine, nine cents a share range. And so, but you know, you look at the the market making function was there to create an orderly market. Too many sellers they stepped in and were paid to buy. Too many buyers they were they were mm. sellers, right? You look at today, uh, most of the market making function is electronic. Um, that liquidity that those guys provided back then, uh, when things get hair in the market, that liquidity goes away. Guys can turn off uh, some of these pools. And so I, you know, that, that has probably been, I'd say, one of the biggest changes, probably the second change related to market structure of vehicles that we use today. Mm. We have created things that um, trade like an equity, like an ETF, for instance, but the underlying instruments are not as liquid as the ticker that you are buying. And so we've seen that in this last mm-hmm. go round of things. And I'd t- probably say the third thing is that um, we're all using more and more quant in our uh, and how we do our business. And quant for us is how do we 
process use, pull in, synthesize data, all kinds of data, not just traditional data to inform ourselves better, more even fundamentally, but also to run discrete quantitative products. Um, you look at that and put that over here, that's a research and investment function using quantitative methods, but there's also an algorithmic quantitative trading function that has evolved, which has mm -hmm. also created a lot more volatility. So I'd say those three things, you know, um, if I had to pick a few, um, are the biggest things I see that have created change uh, in our industry, certainly for me and my, uh, my tenure at 30 plus years. And then uh, no, no stranger to data and quant, uh, having got to start uh, studying it. University of Waterloo, we have Roland uh, with Wavefront. Uh, let, let's hear about your story. Well, thank you, James. And uh, you're correct. I think I'm one of the earlier people that were involved in quant in Canada, uh, going all the way back to the, to the mid-90s. But um, I run global uh, Wavefront Global Asset Management, which is based in Toronto. We have, also have mm -hmm. through um, subsidiaries operations in Hangzhou, China, and we have distribution partners in Korea. So we have two main uh, skill sets at our firm. One is uh, more macro and futures, which is where we spent most of our earlier years in quant. And uh, more recently, in the last five years, we've added uh, factor-based uh, equity skill sets as well, and uh, also uh, quant-based. And so we, we manage, um, manage futures portfolios and all-weather portfolios in North America, and in China and Korea, we run multi-strategy funds and uh, factor-based uh, equity funds as well. Going further back in time, I started my career at Scotia McLeod and then went on to uh, BMO Nesbitt Burns and spent about mm. seven years seven years there in, in total. Um, and as you mentioned, I, I do work with the Master of Quantitative Finance program at the University of Waterloo. I sit on the advisory board there and have pretty much since its inception um, which has been a, a, a great place to learn. Uh, I hate to say this part, mm -hmm. but like like Kevin, I've been in the business for 30 years, so we've both sort of aged ourselves a little bit. <laughs> well, nothing wrong with that. It's better than the alternative, isn't it? <laughs> no, one really, no one actually leaves the industry. So, um, yeah, so actually we, we, uh, we always get, get a lot of jargon, and I, I just we have uh, our, our listeners from all over the place, uh, many different backgrounds. So maybe... Um, some of the stuff is is uh, in the the common uh, glossary, but how about factor investing? That that's come on. I've, I know there's been ads uh, from a few uh, like mutual fund shops and explaining it, but how would you uh, explain factor investing and how would you how do you use it as a, an asset manager and maybe how do investors use it on their side? Yeah, so AGFIQ um, is our quant uh, shop within AGF and. We're probably managing on that basis alone today, uh, north of $6 billion. Um, mm. But the factor side of it, we have uh, we started out as a single factor. Um, if you go back to the Fama and French work um, that won the Nobel Prize, right, they basically said that there were a few things that when they looked at it were the determinant of outsized price returns. Um, one of them was size, so small cap over large, and mm -hmm. quality. So if you find good small cap companies, high quality. Uh, and value over growth over the long term. So cheap, high quality, small cap names. And then you threw in this other factor, and we can debate whether it is or not. It's called momentum, right? The winners. So the things that are winning that yeah. have those factors, right? And and that, I think those were the base building blocks, but you have to look under each of those. And so you take value. Um, how many sub factors within value that's price to book, price to earnings, price to next year's earnings, dividend yield, et cetera. So then you can disaggregate mm -hmm. all of those macros, large terms, value, size, right, quality, um, and distill down into pieces that you can use 
pull in data to basically create things that have those tilts. That's sort of how I would look at it. Those are the single factor. And then we can move into um, how we put them together into a more of a multi-factor model, which mm -hmm. we say, think about it this way, that each of the sectors of uh, an index or a market have uh, different dominant tendencies. So think of financials have more value characteristics. So you would want to load them up um, mm -hmm. when you think about your stock selection with more value, more quality. You think about technology that has more growth in that, more momentum. So those would be tilted that way. And you put them all mm -hmm. into one rather than, I think, what was, as people think of them, I buy a growth ETF, I buy a momentum ETF. We think of it as maybe putting them all into one, uh, but weighting them differently by sector to give you a real broad, because none of us can really tell you when a factor is going to be dominant. I can't tell you when momentum is going to be right. in, nor when it's going to be out. So we take those single pieces and then blend them together into a true multi-factor approach. That's how I would uh, kind of uh, simplify it. Um, and I think probably Roland would take it to a, the next level, I'd suspect. Well, I don't know if I take it to the next level. It's it's interesting, though, what you say, Kevin. I mean, oddly enough, uh, before factor investing became popularized, uh, we were doing that, but not in the equity markets. We were doing that as it uh, related to explaining how futures markets behave, because hmm. our, our roots go back to, you know, we started more in macro and futures. Um, but the the way we approached the problem or the issue was to first say, well, we entered into an industry that already existed. And our first question was, what are the typical strategies that people use in the industry and how can we explain why those strategies work? And in the futures industry, uh, uh, you know, going back to the 1980s, the predominant strategy or strategy was a momentum strategy. And so yep. our, our first research was on why should momentum strategies work? And then we started investigating momentum as a factor and why it could explain returns in the futures market. From there, we started looking at other factors that might explain uh, returns that you could achieve in the futures market. So value and uh, yield. And yield really is looking at the curve of futures prices, the difference between spot prices and futures prices. But much like equities, mm -hmm. the, the, in any, in any uh, aspect of the investment industry, you really do have to understand where your source of return is. And that's saying, what are the factors that explain that? Um, so uh, that's really what I would add, uh, James and Kevin, is that uh, those same things that can explain stock returns can also explain the returns of many markets that are covered uh, through the futures markets. So commodities, currencies, fixed income can all be explained by factors just as much as equities can. And we, like Kevin, we take the same approach. We can't tell you when one factor is going to work or not, but we can tell you that if we can identify several factors that all produce returns over time in a complementary fashion, then a multi-factor approach uh, does add value. Wow. And I guess in the, um, in the managed futures area, there's uh, commodity trading advisors, CTAs, is it momentum is basically analogous with, with trend following and, and, keeping your winners and, and just cutting your losers, right? And then you know, using algorithms and, and uh, trading strategies to make sure that even if you do have a 50-50 hit rate on your winners and losers, you uh, you may end up making money because you let the, the winners run, eh? That, that's correct, James. I mean, there's uh, I'll explain it a little bit differently. If you don't have serial correlation or a tendency towards trend in, a, in the market data, a trend-following strategy will not work. Uh, but mm -hmm. when you look at the market data, you certainly can observe that there is serial correlation uh, that exists uh, in the market, and therefore those strategies work. 
No, the only thing I'd add to that, guys, is the fact that you know momentum is one of these things that people say they talk about, but what does it really mean? It really means the winners, right? And, and the winners change every day, right? So some of the things that are out there that we see, where if you're not rebalancing that winner's basket, um, what you think you're buying uh, may have this massive what I call factor decay. So if you sit there and say, I'm going to buy this portfolio of the best, strongest price winning names, and I leave it there, you know, in three or four months, what you have is not what you thought. So momentum is something, you know, that changes pretty quickly. Um, so, I, you know, even just look at this recent market. If you look at the names from the market peak in February to the bottom in March that did the best, they were the leaders, the biggest tech names, the what I call the stay-at-home portfolio, right? Yeah. And then you look at what happened from the market bottom to now. That group of market leaders and winners um, so underperformed in this last rally from that bottom in March to where we were yesterday. I mean, by a spread that we have not seen. So if you had just sat there, and this is literally over a two-month period, and said, I thought I bought the winners, um, what you've got is an entirely different portfolio. So some of these factors huh. have to be thought of as um, changing and changing regimes pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And that, that's right, Kevin, is, especially in momentum. But by the very definition of momentum, it is not a static thing that goes in one direction. It does change. And so the key, is, but an exposure to momentum is a factor that is associated with positive returns over the long term. Um, but by its definition, momentum does change. So you have to recognize uh, what the momentum is. And when you're speaking about the factors and the, the factor decay, it reminded me of the old uh, hedge fund replication strategies out of Cass at uh, Cass University in 2002. And they, they were saying that they could replicate hedge fund returns by basically decomposing um, the returns into factors and then replicating those factors with futures and other types of types of derivatives. And you could not, you could get away from paying the two and 20 by, uh, by getting these and paying half a point or something like that. But, uh, the problem was there was a, there were changes in the factors and the the weightings of the factors, um, that, and so I didn't really see these really catch on. What do you guys think of that that side? Maybe uh, either Kevin or Roland. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, the two and twenty model, as we've come through this for the classical, um, let's let's call them the long short manager, right? Who's skill based. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure they did as well as people would have thought for what they paid, right, and what they got. Um, I think things like managed futures really shown their value in this, in an active managed future strategy. I think there are things like, um, you know, we've used some rule-based things using factors. Um, One of the ones we think about is we know in a market downdraft, right, the highest beta names get hit pretty hard, right? And there's an asymmetry to beta, Mm -hmm. right? When the market's going up 10%, maybe high beta names go up 12. When the market's going down 10%, those names are probably down 17. So that asymmetry, Mm -hmm. that tail, right, that, that negative outcome, if you take a rules-based approach, you can take, say, let's take a basket. Let's just short the highest beta names in the market and go long an equal basket of the lowest beta names. So when the market's going down, your the low beta names hang in there better. Your high beta names get absolutely torched. And you short them, put them mm-hmm. together, and you can actually create a negative correlation. So stuff like that mm-hmm. um, has worked better, I think, than trying to find the possible long-short skill-based guy, supposedly. At two and twenty, right, and, and and so I think those are the type of things at managed futures. Um, when we look back at this period and say what did really well, like that strategy I just touched on, that was up sixteen, eighteen percent. 
in the on the on the peak of that draw down, right? Right. So, right. so some people say well, I, I was only down four or five percent relative to a market that was down thirty five. I'm not sure people think that's a victory when they're paying two and twenty. I, I could be wrong. Yeah, and I'll just add a little bit to that. I mean, you bring up an important point, James, when you talk about the fact that a number of uh, hedge fund strategies are, are, are now explainable and replicatable. That is the greatest benefit, I think, to investors is that you're seeing this growth mm -hmm. of um, uh, liquid alternatives and ETFs that are able to um, bring to investors access to uncorrelated sources of return, uh, that used to be in the domain of the hedge fund industry. And that's going to create a, an interesting issue for the hedge fund industry where it has to reinvent itself uh, to try to define where are the places that it can add value or can it add value above those things. Um, but I think the, the biggest change that we've seen recently that I've seen in, in, and I look at it from the lens of a hedge fund manager uh, is that a number of the, uh, the strategies that were used are now explainable and understandable. And so there, be, there is a commoditization going on of a large segment of the hedge fund industry into liquid alternatives uh, and ETFs with a much more favorable fee structure and a much wider um, uh, array of choices for investors. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I think you know it's be become, and I think we'll look at it when we look backwards and say, um, could those, to Roland's point, we made them affordable, explainable, um, packaged in a way that the everyday retail, small institutional investor can afford. And I think that's going to be what's different about asset allocation going forward, perhaps, whereas before that was the domain of large, sophisticated institutional players at high minimums, right? So we've given the everyman now the ability to have less than the, that drawdown that, that's so painful for many. Yeah, you're both exactly right. I mean, we had, I, I, we had, a, <clears throat> I remember reading back in the Canadian Investment Review, I think it was 2005 or six, and uh, there was an article that was recent, was updated afterwards. But basically, hedge funds are, it's never been average two and 20. There's some that are three and 50, but, you know, the average was about 1.65 and then 16% performance fee. And that's, that's whittled down a few basis points a year. Uh, but with these liquid alts, um, yeah, they are typically lower. Nice thing is they do have a performance fee, so the manager and the investor can focus on the performance versus the fees for instead of like driving to the bottom. Because we've seen this in other markets where they couldn't do that, and you may not have had the A team on your uh, on your on your management bench or your PM bench. But uh, throughout the piece here, we've had uh, well, a famous quote by Robert Reich is that of course hedge fund managers have inside information because the market was down twenty percent in, in by minimum near the end of May or March. And uh, hedge, hedge was only down 9%. But uh, we have our liquid alts update, 7.3 billion in the Canadian liquid alts industry at the end of the year. At the end of Q1, about 7.25 billion. So I don't think a lot of money rushed in, uh, but it just shows you that it didn't lose a heck of a lot um, during that piece. It would have lost the gains maybe for the previous part of the year, but that's uh, that's been pretty good for, for investors democratizing it but what about uh and roll and use uh, just by virtue of the the, the futures markets uh, leverage let's uh how, how do you view leverage and how do you uh because i had how do you tame it in, in your portfolios and with your uh, with your trading well we we don't use a lot of leverage in our portfolio um mm -hmm. the uh uh, my view is that leverage is not very well understood, and but I would say this that um, 
leverage can be very dangerous if you if you don't understand it. I'm not a big believer mm -hmm. in the in the risk parity approach, um, and I'll particularly address it in fixed income. If you look at today, you're seeing a lot of highly levered products uh, uh, using fixed income, and in fact, you're seeing a lot of leverage with equities because the volatility has been so low up and up until now, really in the last several years. I mean, equity markets have looked more like what historically hedge fund returns looked like, you know, very low volatility, very stable. Mm -hmm. And what happens in environments like that is, is, is people leverage up. And, you know, but if you look at fixed income markets and you look at crises, not that we've had one in fixed income markets, but they tend to be measured in uh, basis point movements. So when there's a shock, you will see rates between the short and long end uh, quickly jump between 50 and 150 basis points. And that doesn't matter where the starting point of interest rates are. So in today's environment, when interest rates are very low and there's a greater sensitivity to basis point movement, if you have highly leveraged fixed income positions and there were to be a shock, um, leverage would be very mm. punitive today. So we're, uh, you know, we have a lot of respect for um, uh, minimizing the use of, of leverage in our portfolios. Kevin, what do you, uh, your products at AGF, are there many that use a fair bit of leverage or are most of them uh, like long, long only mutual funds and... Um and such or how, to, how what kind of structure do you have and where, where do you think it's headed yeah so we um our fundamental stuff has, has traditionally been long only um you know we have uh, tipped the firm to be more global and get out of the way of the things that are going to be uh, more commoditized um so we have very few things that are in the core buckets anymore so mostly global em uh global debt on that side uh, and some differentiated canadian things but for the most part we're more global than most i'd say the second thing is that we have really built out that quant capability, which is 20 odd people today. Um, and again, they're feeding right. our fundamental folks um, data in so many different ways, quicker, faster to help them in their fundamental piece. But we also run discrete quant products, um, all multi-factor. Um, but also then we bolted on to that um, a few years back, um, a shop that uh, was in the mm -hmm. U.S. that were the first folks to actually be able to uh, get SEC um, approval to short inside of an ETF, so market neutral ETFs. So oh, wow. we take we take that approach, and it's not leveraged; um, they're market neutral for the most part. Um, and we complement that long only suite of things that are factor based in the quant space now with the liquid alt capability. So that anti beta product that I referenced earlier, we use that actually not only for people who want to use it as a, a risk dampener, right? Uh, we think of it as kind of house insurance in our balance portfolios. So we think about house insurance. Um, you're paying the premium every year for 10 years. Two of the 10 years, you're going to have a flood. You're going to have a, a roof that leaks, and you're going to need to trigger that insurance. So if we can hard code that into a balanced portfolio and minimize the drawdowns to agree, like the drawdown we just saw, instead of having a negative 35, you have a plus 16 or 18 type return, that's going to go a long way in, in uh, helping you through that, that negative, terrible compounding that happens in a drawdown. And so we've taken them and said, not just discreetly using them, but using them in our long-only balanced uh, product suites as well, using them mm -hmm. in certain of our uh, long-only funds. And so, as, again, think of them as a risk mitigation. So it's uh, the industry and, and the firm has moved to really look at quant, not just as a this strange word, but how do we process, use, and take 
things like liquid alts and bring them into our old long only business and bring them forward in terms of how to think of it. So I don't think of it as a liquid alts. I think of it as how do we use those type of instruments, period, uh, in our long only business. Yeah, I have a friend who runs a foundation and he says, he, he was speaking to one of our <clears throat> group of members and he says, listen, we have 25% of our money is with, in hedge funds. 40% is with hedge fund managers because we find that they're really good long only managers because they're looking for uh, they're looking for problems and they're going to be shorting it in their hedge portfolio. So uh, they can use that insight into the, into the long only portfolio. So uh, yeah, I can see that makes a, makes a lot of sense. Um, I imagine clients have changed. Uh, they've, they've had reactions to the COVID uh, crisis, the coronavirus, you know, Roland, you're, you're a PM, but you do interact with clients. And then uh, Kevin, you're of course running, running strategy and such, but imagine there's quite a bit of client interaction or hearing what, how they, how they're reacting. Um, you start with Kevin, like, because your stuff is daily liquidity, is it redemptions or are people holding on or what, what's, what's the tone maybe from, uh, from the investor base? Yeah, so we actually looked at it pretty hard in, in March. The industry, I'll just use Canadian mutual fund data, the industry mm-hmm. lost in redemptions about $15 billion. Not market drawdown, but redemptions, which was like historic. 1% or so? Yeah. Yeah, in, in the month of people pulling out. Um, some of it went to mm-hmm. cash, as you'd expect, and sat on the sidelines. Uh, and you look through it, the largest redemptions came out of bond funds um, and balance funds, uh, which was interesting to us when we looked huh. at the industry data. Yeah. We've publicly disclosed this. We were out about half of 1%. Some of the larger players were between 1% and 1.5%. Um, mm. And some of the players that got off sides, meaning not only did they have a, the drawdown with the market, they, they did even much worse, 4 to 5% of their assets gone Wow! in redemption. And so, you know, we've held in pretty well as a firm. I think a lot of it has been our product suite has really held up tremendously. Performance has been very strong. So, and we've, we've been talking about the fact that, you know, if you sat with us a year ago, we were, Roland and I would tell you that I was very much on the fact that we were probably toward the end of the cycle. Um, did I see this yeah. thing happening? No. Um, but we had started to go into a, a, a more conservative mode um, and preserve capital. Because I think, you know, I look at our end investor. And I go back to when I ran a tech fund in 2000, right? We mm. blew up a lot of people who were probably 40 years old. Um, they took a long time to get it back. They got their wealth back probably by 2006. Mm-hmm. They lost it again in 2008, and they were 48. And now we're, we're new wow. market highs, and we're, we're knocking on the door of 60, right, for those people. And so I think the mentality mm. shifted to capital preservation for us and thinking about who the end investor was. So we went into this using some of these risk mitigation, liquid alternative strategies more broadly. So when this thing accelerated and hit us, it really helped us um, drive through it uh, to a very great degree, um, relatively significantly better, which I think has helped our flows. And maybe Roland, you can speak to Canada and and Korea because you have distribution there. Well, so like Kevin, I would say that we had a very favorable um, outcome in this in terms of asset flows, we actually saw our asset flows increase, uh, and that's explainable as 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 with AGF nice. with based on performance. So um, uh, if you if you fare well and you add value in a certain environment, you would expect your flows to respond to some degree. Um, in Korea, we actually saw a twenty percent increase in our in our asset flows. Um, wow. Uh, so we were we were quite pleased by that. And uh, but here in North America, uh, we are seeing daily inflows into our managed futures product, uh, and we're seeing interest in our all weather hedge fund product as well. 
uh, again, all based on performance and how we were able to deliver uh, in, in this environment for our clients. I do think there's a structural difference in, in this versus a 2008, obviously. Um, and, and the more important question is, what do we do going forward? And I think that's where we should probably lead the conversation here, James. Yeah, that's good to hear. Because uh, the old saw CTA or Commodity Trading Advisor written backwards is ATM, because they usually do very well in crises. And then you know people are like, great, I need my money because I have to these other things I want to put it into. But it's fantastic to hear that. They've, uh, you know, kind of re-upped on their insurance after the, uh, after the flood sort of thing, because there's, there's so much volatility in the market and who knows where it's going to go. Well, let's see where it's going to go. Um, you, uh, stay with you, Roland, and uh, see where you're looking with your, uh, uh, with the markets that you're in and uh, maybe tell us a bit more about the, the all weather fund and how is it structured and, and what does it do in different types of markets? Sure. Well, the, the genesis of all weather was interesting uh, because we, for years, as you know, James, have been managing managed futures portfolios. And, uh, but we kept hearing from clients. That's great. I, you know, that you have that and it has the, mm-hmm. the, the, the benefit of lack of correlation most of the time and negative correlation during periods of stress, uh, much as this strategy performed in in, in past periods, you, you can look at any managed futures index and you'll see how well they did in 2008, you'll see how well they did in the uh, Southeast Asian currency crisis of 98. But more and more we were hearing from people uh, that there was an interest in us packaging it uh, into an all-weather portfolio. Rather than just give them the tool, people were looking for us to, to do a lot of the work for them. And so we launched an all-weather fund, which does include an allocation to managed futures, but it also is, much as the name would suggest, all-weather, it's invested across a, uh, a wide portfolio of complementary asset classes and investment strategies on those asset classes, which include equities, fixed income, uh, gold as a strategic asset, uh, and other commodities and currencies uh, using a number of different strategies. Um, so we think that inve- there's, there, there's a lot of appeal for the inve- from the investor to deliver them products um, uh, that have packaged a lot of the, the work for them. And we think it's a very appealing product for, uh, for investors. And it's not meant to be... Um, something where you're trying to fit it to the current environment. It's meant, as all weather suggests, to have a number of arrows in its quivers such that it can perform throughout market environments. Um, there are not a lot of all weather funds in Canada. Uh, there certainly are a number globally, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, in, in the Canadian market, we haven't seen a lot of that yet. And how about from your side, Kevin? Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, we look at where the market is right now. Um, you've, uh, you've got to remember, we, we're going to see economic data that is probably uh, the worst of in history, um, certainly uh, on a one quarter basis for sure. And the market has basically said, you know, let's put all that data aside. It's going to be terrible. Um, it's not going to be the magnitude of it. It's going to be really, in my mind, the duration of this event. Mm. And so we have not cared about uh, jobless claims to this point. Uh, we've been focused on, uh, you know, virus claim, virus data. You know, what are the incremental flattening of these curves? Um, and then the secondary effect has been the conversation around restarting these economies. So I think that's been the move we've had so far. I think now that you've restarted them, and I think you know, it was easy, you know, running a firm. I would tell you, it was not easy. Uh, but it's, it's shutting it down is not as difficult. It's like shutting a light switch off. People just go home. Uh, we were able to work from home effectively in ter- basically the entire firm. And we do a lot of different things mm-hmm. around the world. We have offices around the world. Uh, and it all worked pretty seamlessly. Um, but going back is going to be a much more harder challenge. 
So from here, we're going to all focus on as the states in the U.S. and the provinces in Canada open. Um, does now the economic data start to pick up? Do claims data on a weekly basis start to lessen? Um, does the monthly data start to reflect an improvement in the economies? And I think that will now start to have to take over because we've ignored that data for health data. And then you're going to see markets react to different um, things. It's going to see mm -hmm. the states that came back early and maybe the virus data picked back up instead of a hot spot showing up here will have a negative impact on the markets. You'll get moved around positive and negatively over virus and vaccines and therapy uh, rumors. Um, but the true move here to get these economies back is going to be how quickly can people get back to normal? And I just think it's gonna take some time. Uh, if you can get um, behavior back to some normalcy by the third quarter and start to see acceleration into the fourth quarter, then the markets will, 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 will price that back in. But I'd say from here, we're definitely, I think, a little bit more range bound. Um, we, again, if you get a pickup in virus data, you'll probably see this market sell off a bit here. So I think we're going to be a bit more choppy uh, as we've gotten to this level. Um, where we go from here, though, I think it's a very different event than 08. Um, we'll pay the piper for all this debt that's been issued. Um, you know, the fiscal uh, side of this coin is going to leave deficits in every developed country in the world. And we'll deal with it later. We're probably in a lower interest rate environment at the lower bound for a lot longer, which, again, changes how you think about fixed income. And how do you substitute for that? And so I just think, you know, we're going to have to look at all and certainly the asset allocation part, as I said earlier, differently um, for investors. I think this preservation of capital issue, um, people have gotten some of it back, haven't gotten all of it back. Right. But they're not going to want to take as much pain in the future. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of rhymes and echoes on the both the, the virus side and and the economy and and markets and such. So it won't be the same as anything we've ever seen before, but it'll change. But the nice thing is, you're right. It's it's there isn't really a moral hazard here. It just happened. So the government's helicoptering money in. You know, MV is PQ, so just fill up the M. Kind of who cares? And uh, you know, if everybody does it, if everybody puts ten percent of GDP into their their citizens' pockets, um, I don't not even sure if you'd have that much inflation or if you did you wouldn't really have that much of a worry on the uh, on the fx front because they're all kind of doing the same thing there isn't really a beggar that neighbor here yeah if you look at the tail events right let's take the, the two tail events here to your point right you were you've literally replaced you basically said to the world we're shutting you off for four months and we're giving it back to you pay your bills but think about it um the tail event to the right is going to be you give all this money and stimulus and all of a sudden they have a vaccine it's probably a low probability event but a vaccine shows up in months not years and everything restarts, theaters, sporting events, right? You, that amount of stimulus that's been thrown into this with that quick of a restart is probably a market leg up we can't even imagine. Yeah. Let's go to the other tip, right? The restart is slower. Take, take downtown, the downtown core of Toronto, just to, to use, and I can play this out in every city, mm -hmm. right? You can't bring back the whole workforce. You're going to bring back manufacturing, construction, small boutiques. You're going to have a certain number of people in them. In office towers, you're going to say a third of the floor can be occupied, and you're going to have to be so many different feet feet away, et cetera. A third of your workforce comes back in a 60-story tower. What happens to the bagel shops, the sandwich shops that aren't feeding at noon a full complement? They're feeding a third. So the yeah. activity comes back. We may have restarted, um, but we're restarting with a different 
level of economic activity to the small businesses. So I think that's where the shaping of this may not be a V. And so the left tail becomes with that kind of a moderate restart, if you got a turn down in this virus data, meaning more outbreaks, um, the, you know, we have a second wave and you got to shut things down, you're going to retest the low for sure and go through it. Kind of the two tails in the middle middle part of this this curve, if you will, is a duration mm -hmm. that's priced in of about four months, right? So think April, May, June, July. And then by the time you get to the end of the summer, if schools don't reopen, you can't bring back working families. It gets to be more problematic in terms of how do you economically push this forward. You're seeing that also in current forecasts for the S&P. You're seeing a wider range than ever that that basically correlates to the fact that there are left and right tail events. So you're seeing, I'm seeing forecasts from 1,600 all the way to 4,000. I, I would say if you did have a right tail event, that probably is, uh, well, I actually think both tail events are inflationary in the long term, but a right tail event would be very inflationary because of the pickup in activity and the amount of money in the system. Uh, the left tail event is also ultimately inflationary from the standpoint, but probably after a deflationary leg, uh, from the standpoint that um, increases in public debt generally lead uh, to inflation down the line for, for the opposite reason. The thing we can't do is predict. What we can do, though, very well is we can size up mm -hmm. the facts and where the fault lines are. I don't think there's any question that even with all the stimulus that's happening, um, that people and businesses will be poorer, but uh, maybe not to the same magnitude because of the support that's being, being thrown at the system. But there's no doubt that people and businesses are going to be poorer. Uh, there's no doubt that public debt is going to increase by 20 to 30 percentage points of, of, of GDP. So understanding fault lines, I think, is the most important thing you can do here. And, and part of this is contrarian in the sense that nothing is pricing in inflation today. But if you look at the dynamics of debt, if you look at the potential of right tail events, if you look at the long term trends that were in place before this happened, I think ultimately um, the stimulus that's been thrown at the market starting in 2008 after the global financial crisis and now here will ultimately have uh, some inflationary impact. And, and so there should be some exposure to that in portfolios going forward. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree, guys. I think that the, the near-term imp impact is going to be um, yeah. a fair amount of deflation. And there'll be a lot of secular change, right? The winners and losers are going to become very different with rolling when you print this much money that has to be financed over time when you get these economies refiring again at these low levels of interest rates ultimately the second tail could be an inflation spike but it's way out at this point yeah if you learn anything from uh, the the 1918 uh, contagion or pandemic it was that they didn't even find a, a cure like they didn't find a, a vaccine and it's died out after like four years but uh we're hoping that won't be us now because uh we're just a lot more global um this has been great. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Roland. That's uh, uh, wealth of information here from your to combine sixty plus years on the street. Um, very seasoned, uh, both of you on Bay Street and and uh, globally. Uh, we look forward to having you on another uh, podcast again sometime soon. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Jim. Yeah, thanks, James. It was terrific. Thanks, James. Yeah, thank you very much.